Romans chapter number 5. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather in your house this morning. Lord, we just ask now that you would help us to preach with power and unction of the Holy Spirit. Father, that you would make real to the hearts and to the ears and to the lives of those that are within the sound of my voice the truths of your word. Father, that you would do in us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, that you glorify your precious Son in all that takes place today, that he'd be lifted up, Lord, that he'd increase, that we'd decrease, that in all things he gained the preeminence, Lord, and that your will would be accomplished in our lives. Now, Lord, we've not prayed these words in vain. We've not prayed them just as formalities, but we've prayed them in faith, expecting and asking you to do these things for your glory. And we do ask them now in that name which is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, as we've read in Romans chapter number 5, I want to draw your attention to verse number 9 and a phrase that's used in verse number 9. We went ahead and read verse number 10, and it's found in verse number 10 as well. In fact, you'll see it's found in verse 9. In verse 10, you'll find that it's found in verse number 15, verse number 17, and then one more time in verse number 20. By the Lord's help, I'd like, and with His leading, to preach for the next few weeks on a little phrase that's found five times in Romans chapter number 5 that I believe gives us an understanding about the grace of God. And it's this phrase, verse number 9 begins with it when it says this, Much more, much more. Five separate times in Romans chapter 5, Paul says about the grace of God that the grace of God is a much more matter. Now you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I wrote three words down just for a little introduction that I think may help us to understand about the grace of God, uh, this much more concept. Now go ahead and admit to you that trying to describe the grace of God's impossibility. I mean, listen... You might as well try to drink up the ocean. You might as well try to hug a mountain. Amen. You're never really going to describe the grace of God and exhaust the description. You're never really going to say everything that there is to say about the grace of God. But I think when we admit our inability, we take the first good step. And I think that we might begin about the grace of God by saying that the grace of God, whatever you can say about it, there's much more to be said about the grace of God. Whatever it is in your life where you have need, can I say the grace of God has what you need and much more. In any way in which sin has had dominion, let me say it's the will of God that grace would have much more dominion in your life. You see, grace 
is a much more type of thing. And when we think of something being much more, I can't help but think of the idea of abundant. You know, the grace of God is an abundant thing. When we speak of God's grace, and you've heard this little, uh, you know, description before, and it may help you remember it, it helps me remember it. The idea of grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We might call grace the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the idea that God reached down deep into the coffers of His love and righteousness and scooped out a handful, a mighty handful, a handful big enough that it measures out uh, the span of the universe and that in the lines thereof it measures out the depths of the ocean and when God reached His eternal hand out with a big old handful of grace and reached it down to a lost sinner like you and me that we might partake of the grace of God, His coffers did not lose any of their richness. The bag did not get any lighter. The store did not get any smaller. Grace is an abundant thing. Else it could not be offered. You see, if there wasn't a bunch of grace, (laughs) there wouldn't be enough grace for you and I. But grace is an abundant thing. Let me say that grace is an abundant thing, else it couldn't be offered. But grace is an active thing, else it wouldn't be offered. Grace is not a theoretical thing. Grace is a practical thing. Grace is not just an ideological thing. Grace is not just a theological thing. Grace is an experimental and experiential thing. In other words, you and I, we partake in the grace of God. Grace is active, else it wouldn't be offered. Let me tell you something. God wouldn't talk about His grace if His grace couldn't do something for you and me. Now, we need to break out of this thing and just, uh, you, you know, we, I, I want to explain this just right. There, there, there's something I often say. I, I use a phrase to people. I, I, I call certain sayings cross-stitch sayings. And what I mean by that is this. Now, how many of you had, had a godly grandmama that somewhere in her house she had some kind of wall hanging with a Bible verse that, that was cross-stitching? Anybody testify with me about that? You know what I'm talking about? Oftentimes, the sayings that they would stitch into those wall displays would be the, the most common, the most cliched, the most trite of sayings. And they, they, they stitched them there because they were common. And I think so oftentimes our Christianity uh, gets relegated to just a bunch of trite uh, and, and common sayings. But I mean, listen, when we talk about the grace of God, we're not just talking about an ideal. We're not just talking about a philosophical viewpoint. We're very much talking about the power and strength and majesty and love and mercy and forgiveness of an almighty and eternal and thrice holy God. I mean, grace is a real thing this morning. And it's active in the lives of those that put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's a much more thing because it's an active thing. But then I would say to you that grace is an availing thing, else it would do no good to offer it. It's an abundant thing where you couldn't offer it. It's an active thing where God wouldn't offer it. But it's an availing thing or else it wouldn't do any good to offer it. Can I give you this little quote? I don't often write down a quote in my notes, but I, the Lord brought this to my mind and I wanted to write it down. Grace is an availing thing. For grace is God overcoming our insufficiency through His unending sufficiency. You see, grace wouldn't be grace if it couldn't overcome our shortcomings. Grace wouldn't be grace if it couldn't make up the gap and fill up the hedge. Grace wouldn't be grace. Listen, if grace looked at you and I and said, do your part, it wouldn't be grace anymore. Grace is for the helpless. Grace is for the hopeless. Grace is not for those that would help themselves. Grace is for those that can't help themselves this morning. And the grace of God avails all of our inabilities and insufficiencies. And as Paul begins to relay to us the grace of God in our lives in the book of Romans... When we come to chapter number 5, if we were to view 
Paul as addressing one individual. Let's say, for instance, that in Romans chapter number 1, Paul walks up to an individual, walks up to you or walks up to me, we would be a lost individual he'd be speaking to. He would convince us of our lost condition. He would convince us of all of mankind's lost condition. We would then say, well, I'm a pretty good person, you know. And then Paul would say, no, you're not a pretty good person. There's none righteous. No, not one. He would go down the line showing us how our self-righteousness is nowhere near God's holy righteousness and how that it cannot avail. We'd say, well, how do I get God's righteousness? And he'd come in chapter number 4 and he'd explain to us how that by faith we can be made righteous through the righteousness of Christ. He'd tell us about Abraham that was made righteous through faith. He'd tell us about David who was made righteous through faith. Then let's say down at the end of chapter 4, we say, well, that's what I need. And we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of chapter number 4, we wipe the tears from our eyes. We throw the handkerchiefs away. We get up from the altar. We're born again. In chapter number 5, Paul looks at you and I and says, Therefore, therefore, seeing what God has done in your life, seeing that you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, and he begins to talk about the condition of the believer as he stands today. He says in verse number 1, he talks about our past. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't say we ought to try to have peace with God. He says we're justified so we have peace with God. You see, uh, the peace, uh, we weren't worried. Uh, uh, the, The peace wasn't ours to win. Somebody say amen to that. God had to do it for us. God was the offended party. And He was the one that had to be reconciled. He was the one that had to be satisfied. And through the cross of Calvary, peace has been had with God. If two warring nations, or if you've got two nations, listen, if they're at war, they're not at peace. And if they're at peace, they're not at war. That's part of the problem we have in our current political climate. You see, we don't want to admit whether we're at war or at peace with a certain ideology. Somebody say amen to that. We don't want to, now they've said they're at war with us, but we don't want to say we're at war with them. But we don't want to altogether admit we're at peace with them either. Well, you can't have it both ways. If you're at war, you're not at peace. And if you're at peace, you're not at war. Well, guess what, my friend? If you've been born again, you're not an enmity with God. You're not an enemy of God anymore. Peace has been made. You're no longer at war with God. God is not your enemy and you're not His. There's peace with Him through the cross of Jesus Christ. He speaks of our past, that peace has been given, that the victory has been won. He speaks of our present in verse number 2 when he says this, "...by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand." That's where we stand today if we've been born again. We stand in this grace with access by faith. You realize that when God looks at you today, if you're born again, He looks at you as justified as accepted. And you said, but I fail, preacher. Well, your failing and your flying don't have anything to do with your standing. If you've been born again, you stand justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. He points to our future in the end of verse number 2 when he says, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Listen, we've got something to rejoice about. We're looking forward to a day where we're glorified with Him. Not just where He's glorified and we enjoy it, but where we're glorified with Him. And He speaks about our problems that we experience in verse number 3. He says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Let me say, this isn't my message, but it's interesting to note that this is the first mention of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in the book of Romans. 
the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit in chapter number 1, but it does not talk about it in relation to the life of the believer. But here, for the first time, Paul begins to talk about the work of the Holy Ghost in the life of the believer. You know why? Because the Holy Ghost don't really start His work in your life. Listen, when you're under conviction, He's working on your life. But when you get born again, He's working in your life. And that doesn't begin until there's peace with God. In the next few verses, and this is what I want to preach on this morning, Paul begins to talk about one of these much mores. And so I hope I've given you the idea that, that Paul is dealing with how abundant grace is. That whatever there were deficits in our life, that grace has the capacity to overcome them. And every time he uses this phrase much more, an argument is laid out, and then based upon that argument or based upon that truth, then we learn something of the grace of God. And there's five of them. If the Lord gives us liberty to, we'll preach on all five in the next few weeks. But let me say that this morning I want to preach on this thought, the much more of the sacrifice of grace. Let me tell you something. I don't care what the world does for you. It'll never do for you what Jesus Christ has done for you. I love my little boy. I I mean, you know, you see him up here and he's hard not to love, right? But you don't see him at home. I love him even when he's rotten, you know? I love him all the time. I'd do anything for him. I mean, anything that I could, I'd give anything. But he's my little boy. He's not my enemy. He's my little boy. The love that I have for him, people say, well, you won't know the love that God uh, has for, for us until you have a child. Well, even then you won't really understand it because he's your child. But God loved us when we were sinners. And so Paul is going to begin to unveil and unravel for us this great sacrifice that the grace of God afforded to you and I. And I want you to notice three thoughts this morning as we preach the Word of God. In verse number 6, he begins with a progressive description of the lost individual. Now, three times he says that you and I, we were something. Now, how many of you would say, Preacher, I want to be like Brother Paul? Would you raise your hand if that's you? I want to be like Paul. Come on, help me now. Say, I want to be like Paul. Sure. All right, well, then you're in here with him because he didn't say you were this. He said we were this. And he's going to describe the condition of the lost individual, and it progresses as he describes them. Notice it with me. The first thing he says about the lost sinner, he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Let me say the first thing that the sinner is described as is strengthless. He is without any strength whatsoever. Now, this does not relate to the physical realm, because I know lots of lost individuals that are strong. And I don't just mean strong physically, but I mean strong of will, strong of mind, strong of purpose, maybe even strong of character in as much as an unregenerate man can be. But this is talking about spiritual strength. Now, let, let me be very careful in the way I say this, because I don't want anybody starting to smell tulips around here. I, I'm not, if I had a Calvinist bone in my body, I would have it surgically removed, I would pour muriatic acid on it, I'd break it in two, I'd bury it, and then I'd come back every year and do that again. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm a no point. I don't believe in any points of the, of, of Calvinism. There are no, I mean, I, I, there are no petals on my tulip. I don't even have a tulip, okay? But the Calvinists have taken and twisted and perverted a biblical doctrine which they would call total depravity. Now, what they would call that is that man has no capacity to come to God and therefore the only ones that come to God are the ones that God picks. Now, that's wholly unscriptural in every way, shape, fashion, and form. We respond in faith to the Word of God. But there's no question that before we're born again, we are dead in our sins and we must be quickened by the Spirit of God. 
Do you understand that the lost man, and I do not mean this like the Calvinist means it, and I think I made that clear, is totally and utterly depraved in and of his nature? He does not have the capacity to do right in and of himself. He may live morally, but he cannot live spiritually. It is not within him to do that. Uh, The natural man, somebody say it with me, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They do not receive godly things. The natural man has no capacity. You see it every year. Hey, it's New Year's. It's resolution time, right? And uh, I, I went, I used to go to a gym. That's when the applause sign would go off. I used to, <coughs> I was going to a gym last year, and uh, I, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to quit going when the new year comes around because it's going to be jam-packed. And I, and I, listen, I am so, I had such initiative about it, I started that in November. Uh, I mean, I started quitting in November. <laughs> I started quitting going in November. But every year you see it. You drive by. I mean, right now, this time of year, in the next month or two, you'll see. You'll drive by. You'll see the gyms are packed. Uh, you'll find. You'll find that even in a lot of places. Now, not around here because we scare people off. But, but in a lot of a lot of churches that that are, uh, you know, where people come and they do mass and thing, all kinds of heresies like that. That that a lot of those places will become packed with people because people are turning over a new leaf, turning over a new leaf, turning over a new leaf, turning over a new leaf. You know what they're doing? They're trying to flex the spiritual muscle they've got, but the problem is they're dead in their sins they don't have the strength to change their life they don't have the strength they don't have the capacity we have no means of reaching god when we're in our lost condition in and of ourselves we cannot do it he describes the lost man as strengthless as unable to be righteous to practice righteousness but then i want you to notice the second thing look down at verse number eight he says this but god commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet what sinners He describes the lost, the unregenerate man, as being strengthless. But then he says, not only is the lost man strengthless, but the lost man is a sinner. The lost man cannot point to his strengthlessness, if we could say it that way, his lack of strength, and blame all of his iniquity on his lack of strength. And let me tell you why. Can I just be real simple this morning? If you're here and lost without Christ, don't blame it all on the fact that you're unsaved. Because I don't know if you realize this, but you probably enjoy sinning too. I know that my carnal nature does. I, I mean, listen, I, 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 can, I can point back. I can say, well, you know, uh, the, the, I, I'm just flesh. I'm just, you know, feeble. But I can't be honest and say that every time that I have sinned, I was trying my best not to. There have been times when I've sinned because I've just enjoyed sinning. There's been times, hey, listen, in fact, I would say this, that in a sense, every time I've sinned, I've done it out of an act of the will, because God, no temptation hath taken you, but such as is common to man. But God will, with that temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There's never been a sin that I've committed that I didn't want to commit. I'm a sinner. It's what I am by nature. It's what I long to do. That's what my carnal man, the old man, longs to do. Uh, listen, we, we don't, uh, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's who and what we are. Paul describes the sinner as being active, a partaker in his sins, a, a complicit participator in iniquity. But look at verse number 10. And I wasn't even going to mention this, but as part of our notes, I believe we need to touch on it. It says this in verse number 10, For if when we were... Enemies. Enemies. God describes the lost man as strengthless, not having the capacity to do what's right. God describes the lost man as a sinner, enjoying doing that which is wrong. But he finally describes the lost man as a seditionist. 
willfully and rebelliously out of a hatred and an ideological and soulful purpose committing sin because sin offends a holy God. Now, let me tell you something. I know that's not the picture we see when we see the average lost man. But you understand that mankind as a whole, mankind in a corporate sense and in an individual sense are rebels against their creator. People say oftentimes, well, people are a product of their environment. Well, that's all good and well, but what are you going to say about Adam and Eve? What are you going to say about Adam and Eve? You don't get a better environment than Adam and Eve. They were created in perfection. They were created and placed inside of a garden. They were created in a place where all of their needs were met, where their idle hands could not become the devil's workshop, where God had given them a task. They were given the perfect leader. They were allowed to walk in the cool of the day with God Himself. And yet still in that place, man found the way to sin. You know why? Because we're rebels. It's within our nature to rebel. None of us like authority. We always pick on kids, teenagers, you know. And, and I try to be a voice for teenagers, you know, because they, cause nobody listens to them. And, and uh, you know, teen, we pick on teenagers a lot. We talk about how rebellious they are, how rebellious, how rebellious. Man, those teenagers are rebellious. When I was growing up, all I heard about was how rebellious teenagers were. And then as you grow up and you look back at some of the adults you had in your life, you think, man, I wasn't the one with the problem. Somebody say amen to that. Adults are just as rebellious. It is within our natures to rebel against God. If God says go right, we want to go left. If God says go up, we want to go down. If God says go forward, we want to go backward. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. We are seditionists. We are lawless. We are rebels. We are criminals. We are enemies against an almighty God. And man left alone unto himself long enough, he'll grow to hate God and despise Him. Light came into the world, but darkness... Darkness comprehendeth it not. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. There is a progressive description that Paul gives. That was our lost condition. And by the way, that's what the law, that's as far as the law could bring us. If I, listen, if I was an Old Testament Jew, I'd have to stop my sermon right now. Because that's as far as the law could take you. The law could show you what you are, but it couldn't help you be anything different. But notice where grace enters the picture. Like, boy, I like this. Oh, man, I enjoy it. Look at verse 8. It says, but God. Man, here you are, strengthless. You're a sinner. You're a seditionist. You're lawless. You're a rebel. You're on your way to hell, and you deserve every minute of the ride and every second spent there. But God. But God did something about it. We see a preventive, a preemptive expression. There's a common love that's spoken of in verses 6 and 7. I won't spend a lot of time talking about it, but it gives us the measure of what the world might do for you. It says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Now, basically what that's saying is this, that it's pretty rare that someone would die for a righteous man. And you might even be able to find someone that would die for good men. Some commentators have said that the distinction here is between uh, righteous uh, dealing with morality and good dealing with benevolent. I don't see a purpose in making that distinction. I don't see where it benefits us, but if that helps you, I guess you could make that distinction. I don't believe it damages Scripture to understand it in that way. But you know what the, you know what the basic truth that God's trying to give us? 
People don't do stuff for people they don't like. That's basically what God's trying to teach us. That we typically don't go out of our way for people we don't like. How many of you uh, love everybody? Anybody? All right. You know, honesty is the first step to revival. It might be, we might get out of the banks this morning. How many of you have some people you don't like? Sure. We typically don't do things for people we don't like. We typically don't make sacrifices for people we don't like. We already gave the illustration. I, I shared with you, I love my son. I do anything for him. It's because he's my son. Let me tell you something. I love all babies. I'm getting ready to make somebody mad, but I, I love all babies. But you don't love any baby like you love your own child. I, that's just the truth, man. I, you know, it, it's funny. I, my, my little boy, can I share this with you? Okay, we got time. Can I share this with you? My little boy, kids are weird, man. And he started doing something weird, all right? The other day, we're, we're, we're sitting in bed. We're laying in bed. Me and his mama and him, he's playing with us and jumping all over us and everything. And all of a sudden, he looks at Leah and he goes, and then he wipes his snotty nose on her face. <laughs> Never done that before. Never. Just up and did it, you know? I don't know what you people been teaching. Let me tell you something. One of these days, one of these days when, I, when this kid's in jail and people are going, boy, that's how preacher's kids are, that, you know, they grow up spoiled. I, I'm going to drag every one of you down there, all right? I'm going to remind you about every toy, every excuse, every secret, every... I, I'm going to remind you about everything. I'm going to say, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I whipped him for things he didn't even deserve it for. You're the one that spoiled him. You're teaching him rotten things like how to snot people and stuff. And learn that from me, all right? You know, kids just, kids do strange things. Let me tell you something. If your child did that to me, I'd hit him in the mouth. But when he does it, it's cute, you know? Yeah. It's cute. <laughs> it's cute. I, you know, they're your own kids. It's strange. You love them, but they're your own child. You don't feel that way about everyone else's children. You love other people's children, but it's just... Not the same, typically. Typically. God's trying to convey to us that there is a common love in humanity in the sense of, of doing that, uh, doing something for someone that does things for you. Maybe a reciprocating sort of love that feeds upon itself and the return that it might gain. But notice the commended love that's expressed in verse number 8. He says this, But God commendeth His love toward us. Now stop and think of it for just a moment. The God whose enemy we are, He commendeth His love toward us. When we speak of the idea of commending, you know, we, we overcomplicate the Bible. Nine times out of ten, if there's a word that you can't wrap your mind around, just use it in a different tense and you'll understand it. Can I give you an example? We might have trouble with the idea of commendeth, but can I use this term? Commendation. Commendation. For instance, if there was a man that was uh, high up in the military and had done many acts of, of heroic and uh, brave things, they might go to him and they might give him a commendation. And what they are doing is they are conveying, the military is conveying their appreciation to that person. It, it has the idea of pinning a medal on someone to prove something to them, to prove that you care about what they did. Well, you know what God did? God pinned His love. <laughs> 
on you. Oh, glory! God pinned His love on you and me. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, that was our cross to hang upon. That was our place that we deserved on that cross. That was our man that was up there. But God looked down on a lost sinner hanging on a rugged cross. And He said, I love him, I love him, I love him. And so He took the expression of His love and He placed it and pinned it upon a rugged cross in your place, in my place, that we might be partakers of the grace of God and stand justified and accepted in the Beloved. That's how God commended His love to you and me. Prove to me that God loves me. Well, look at Calvary and tell me God doesn't love you when He pinned His love upon a rugged cross. We see a commended love, but ultimately it points to Calvary's love. God commendeth His love toward us, and then while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. This is preemptive. Christ didn't die for His friends. He died for His enemies. He died for the very ones that hung Him on the cross. He looked out over that motley crowd and he said, Father, forgive them. He looked forward through eternity. He looked back through the everlasting past and he said, Father, forgive them. He looked at every man that pumps his fist in hatred and rebellion against an almighty God. He looked at every single person that goes and destroys someone that is God's creation and made in His image. He looked at every one that looks with malice and discontent and rebellion upwards towards the stars of a Creator's heaven. And He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't wait for you to get right before He died for you. He didn't wait for you to clean up before He died for you. Think of this with me, that God did this. God did this before we ever received His love. Before we ever received His love, God did this. God did this before we ever recognized His love. Before we ever even knew He did it, He did it. He was a lamb slain, somebody help me, from the foundation of the world. That's when He did this for us. That's when He purposed in the eternal heart that He'd send His Son to be a sacrifice for your sins and mine. God did this before we ever repented of our sins. Let me tell you something, if you, if you live the rest of your life and you never accept Christ as your Savior, if you die angry and bitter, uh, just a shell of a church-going hypocrite, uh, 40 years from now lying on a shriveled-up deathbed, if you die that way, God will still love you. You'll die and go to a devil's hell, but it won't be because God doesn't love you. He'll still love you. We see that God did this before we ever repented. God did this before we ever renovated our lives. Man, we didn't do anything. God did this when we were in our lost condition. I think about the sinner upon the cross. If there was ever a verse, if there was ever a portion that refutes the notion of baptism as being salvitic or necessary for salvation. Listen, I could take you to 30 of them, but I think a good one is the sinner hanging upon the cross. The dying thief who had no opportunity to cut his hair, to take a shower, to buy a big old leather-bound Cambridge Bible, to buy a Sunday morning suit of clothes, to go down into the baptismal waters, to write his name upon a dedication card, but merely in that moment looked and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Christ said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Before you ever did anything, God loved you. And before we ever reciprocated His love, God loved us. Before we ever showed Him any love, He showed us love. I think that's sort of what John meant when he said, Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the love. That's Calvary's love. 
We see in this passage a progressive description. We see a preemptive expression of God's love. But then finally, I want you to just note in closing a positive redemption of our Lord that's spoken of in verse 9. Now, grace did this for us. And the thought that Paul is trying to convey to us is this. If God did that, will He not also do this? If God looked at you and you was lost in your sins and there was no hope, but He sent His Son to die for you when you were His enemy, much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. That's a positive redemption. That's a certain redemption. That's a sure redemption. Like the choir sang about it this morning, that's an anchor that holds. He speaks of our position. He says we're justified. We talked a little bit about it in Sunday school this morning from the book of Galatians about the distinction between the faith, between faith in Jesus Christ and the faith of Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ gets you to the faith of Jesus Christ. Once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the faith of Jesus Christ takes over. And all of a sudden now, your salvation is secure, not because you're believing, but because you have believed. And you have been placed within Jesus Christ. You are now accepted in the Beloved. You're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. You see, that's what grace did. Grace's sacrifice placed us within the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There can be no stronger refuge. There can be no higher tower. There can be no stronger wings to abide under than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that your eternal destiny is connected to His personage. You're placed in Him. You say, things get rough down here. Well, Paul was trying to teach us in the book of Ephesians, we just need to understand we're not really down here. I don't want to get too existential on you this morning. But we say, what if things get bad down here? Well, you're not down here. You're dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You're seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you're placed in Him, seated at the right hand of God the Father. You're seated. Listen, listen to me this morning. You are chained to the throne of the rock of ages and the ancient of days. And your salvation is unshakable because of your position. I think it's unshakable because of your protection. He says, justified how? Justified by His blood. By His blood. Blood once shed cannot be unshed. And the price once paid cannot be demanded again. That sacrifice was once for all. I know people like carry around little crucifixes and they think, I guess they think I'll keep vampires away or something, but... But those of us that know our Bibles know that garlic's the only way to keep vampires away. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> but they, they carry around the little crucifixes. How sad would it be to think our Savior's still on a cross? <laughs> Even the very Bible they carry tells you they took Him down from the cross. And it also tells us what happened next. It tells us they placed Him in a borrowed tomb. But it tells us that in power and glory on the third day, by the power of the Father, He rose incorruptible, unconquerable, eternal, (laughs) eternally powerful. You see, that blood has already been offered. And He's gave the sacrifice once for sin. And now He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And He ever liveth to make intercession for you and I. That sacrifice won't be made again. Listen, if you reject Christ, you reject the only sacrifice there is. There's not another one coming. That one's sufficient. The the sacrifice that grace has offered is once for all, and it's sufficient for all. 
We see the protection, but then notice finally the provision that's mentioned. Look what it says. We're what? We're saved. We're saved. We're saved from wrath through Him. I need not worry where I'll spend eternity. Not because I volunteered a soup kitchen. Not because I've got my name on a church roll. Not because I've been baptized. Listen, not because I study my Bible. Not because I'm a preacher and a pastor. But for one reason and one reason only. I have placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, listen, if God would do all those things, if God would love me when I was a seditionist, don't you think He'll, he'll keep me when I'm His son? That's my security. That, that's, I know, I know, I know that I know because He loved me and He died for me. And if He'd do that, He won't throw me away. He won't throw me away. This morning, there ain't a single person in this room don't have something to be thankful for if you're born again or if you're lost without Christ. There's not a single person in this room to whom the grace of God does not stretch out its eternal arm and plead for you to cling hold and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, I believe it hit everyone, me first and foremost, to think of what God did for me at Calvary, that He loved me in such a way. Oh, grace is a much more thing, and I think we ought to give Him much more thanks this morning as we pray.